Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 50 of the 2QB Experience. My name is Greg Smith. I'm your host, and you can find me on Twitter at GregSauce. You can find all my work at 2QBs.com. Uh, included in that is the 2QBs.com 2017 Draft Guide. Uh, the third edition is going to drop this week, so if you've already bought your copy, watch out for an email update uh, to download the latest version. Um, and if you haven't got yours yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. Draft season is here, and, and you're going to want some time to kind of sift through all the, the awesome content and rankings and whatnot that we have in the guide. So go to 2QBs.com to get your copy. Uh, you get 10% off if you use the promo code 2QBXP, and that's the number two, and then the letters QBXP. Uh, with that said, uh, one of the key contributors to the draft guide is back on the podcast. I'm super excited to have him back on. The last time uh, Anthony Amico was here, we were talking a lot about the draft and the prospect of some rookies. Uh, you can find Anthony's work at Rotoviz, 2QBs, Number Fire, Roster Coach, Fantasy Insiders, and he's a consultant with Draft Day Consultants. You can find him on Twitter at Amixta. That's A-M-I-C-S-T-A. Anthony, welcome back. Good to have you, man. Yeah, always good to be on this show. Uh feel pretty honored, actually, to be here for episode 50. That feels like a milestone. I know. I, I didn't really plan it that way, but I'm kind of excited that we got somebody from the site on for, you know, a, a bit of a milestone episode like that. And for episode 100, I'm going to have to do something crazy. I don't know. But, you know, I'm knocking on my desk here to make sure that we get there. But, you know, I think we will. Anyway, what, what's been, uh, what have you been noticing, man? I know you've been busy outside of the fantasy world, but um, what's been kind of on your brain in terms of football lately? I'm just really jazzed for the Rams. I, <laughs> I know that's like the weirdest thing to say. That's the but hottest take I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like kind of excited because I just feel like they're in the, they're finally going in the right direction. You know, like they've been sitting on this quality defense for like four or five years. I feel like under Jeff Fisher, they finally get rid of them. They pick it, they get, you know, McVay, who I, I really believe in. I think he's going to be a good coach. They get Sammy Watkins. They had Robert Woods. Jared Goff looked like an NFL quarterback in his last preseason game. I mean, it's Rams Nation has to be feeling pretty good right now. Oh, no doubt. And, you know, that brings us right into one of the kind of two QB-centric news items I wanted to talk about. And you mentioned Sammy Watkins getting traded to the Rams. And I I don't hate that move, for, even for Watkins. I think that, you know, people are pushing him down their draft boards probably a little bit too much because, I mean, we see a lot of good receivers do well with bad quarterbacks. Now, I'm not drafting him in like the third round like I was before, but I think that Watkins' value is fine. But I want to talk about the team that he left, the Buffalo Bills. Anquan Bolden retired <laughs> all of a sudden, right, right after signing. And so I want to talk about what this means for Tyrod Taylor and in the context of what appears to be just a blatant tanking job by the Bills. How far has Tyrod slid in your rankings in recent weeks? To be honest, I haven't really moved him at all. I guess I should just from the sheer standpoint that it's possible that he's not Buffalo's quarterback when the year is over. If this tanking thing is real and they're trying to lose some games, that probably doesn't involve having Taylor as their quarterback. But when he's in there, I still think he's a, a stone lock QB1. He's been that with or without Sammy Watkins over the last two years. Granted, his passing efficiency is not as good without Watkins. But I do think that Jordan Matthews and Zay Jones is kind of a better one-two punch than pretty much anything he had last year. I guess you'd consider Robert Woods and Justin Hunter to be like the one-two punch he had for a long, a long period of 2016. So I'm willing to keep Tyrod still as that stone QB1. I, I think I still have him as like QB6 or QB7. I just, I just believe that, that this guy with the rushing, you know, that he's going to continue to get it done. He's, he's led the NFL in QB points accrued through rushing over the last two years. So I don't really see a reason to start doubting him now. But but you're right. That is the big question is how long is he going to keep that starting job? And that situation has become so muddled and so murky when we look at it that I don't know if I can draft him with the same confidence that I was before. Now, I did draft him recently in MFL 10 because everybody else had the same fears and it got to the point where it was just ridiculous. It was like Tyrod Taylor or, you know, Alex Smith. It's like, I'm going to take Tyrod Taylor every time. Like, I don't care if he gets hurt, if he's my QB two in that sort of format. But yeah, I, I'm with you. Like I see the receivers there not being much different than last year and Watkins was hurt most of last year anyway. Uh, Matthews is an upgrade, but his health is a concern. Say Jones is a rookie, so we don't really know what we have there. 
but they still have Charles Clay. He has some chemistry with the tight end, uh, and LaShawn McCoy's still there. But that's my next question, kind of pivoting off of Taylor, is if the Bills really do try to, you know, roll it back and, and do nothing this year on purpose, what does that do to McCoy's season-long value? Like, I, I think you still have to consider him a first-round talent in fantasy drafts, but I think there's a little bit more worry now than there was two weeks ago, right? Yeah, for sure. I, again, I think that the likelihood of a trade just continues to go up. I mean, his value probably couldn't be much higher than it is right now. I, I do think, though, that if you're the Bills and you're trying to tank or you're trying to get something from McCoy, you're probably just going to run him into the ground. I mean, they don't really owe him great point. You know, a ton of money anyway. Like they can get out of his contract after this year and save uh, basically thirty million dollars, cost them five million dollars. Like that's kind of a no-brainer. So if they if they can't find a deal or if they're trying to find a deal, it seems like maybe they just give him a little extra work to you know boost his overall numbers and give more of an opportunity for teams to see him. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really considered that, to be honest, and that's a good point. And so I was considering bumping McCoy behind Melvin Gordon and maybe one or two more of those running backs in that Tier 2 group. Uh, but you may have just sold me on keeping him right there at, at RB3. Um, so I want to move over to the Jaguars, and I want to talk about Blake Bortles versus Chad Henney. Jim Sonis and I last week talked about the possibility that Henney could start to take over, maybe just because Bortles is bad. And we did it kind of speculatively at the time, thinking, oh, yeah, this is something that could happen. And then, lo and behold, not too many days later, it turns out that there's a true quarterback competition going on in Jacksonville. My question to you is that, is is there really a difference between Bortles and Henny from a fantasy perspective? Like, do we care which one? Is, I mean, we care which one is starting because that's the guy we want to draft, but... Do you foresee one of them putting up better numbers or better supporting this offense than the other? I mean, I think Bortles is better. Like, <laughs> I know that he's been really bad, but I think that a move to Henny is more of just like a, uh, the Jaguars panicking and basically saying, like, literally anybody but Bortles will be our quarterback this year because Henny's just not as good. I mean, if you look at the career numbers, uh, AYA is the same. Bortles has a better touchdown rate. He also has a better interception rate, which is crazy to me. Mind-boggling. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, why Henny would merit being the starter is basically just that he's not Bortles. And from a fantasy perspective, Henny doesn't offer near the same upside as Bortles because he's not a runner. And Bortles has been very productive on the ground in his career, which I, I think kind of goes overlooked. He's basically in that... Aaron Rodgers, Andrew Luck tier of rushing QBs, which is very valuable, especially when you consider that he does have some kind of touchdown upside, as we saw it two years ago. So I, I think it's kind of a mistake from a real a real life football perspective to go to Henny. I think for fantasy, it's definitely not good. Uh, but I, I continue to be on the record that Jacksonville is, is the the team that should go out and sign Colin Kaepernick. Just just fix everything. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, I wanted them to trade for Tony Romo back, you know, pre-draft, and that, of course that didn't happen. But they, they've been in need of a QB for many years now, and, and they're only now just starting to realize it, which is kind of sad and depressing. But it, one thing, like, on this front that I, I, I kind of have to disagree with you on is that, I, I don't know, I can see, like, a narrative reason why they would want Henny to be the quarterback, and that's if Bortles really has, you know, quote-unquote, lost that locker room. If, if the other players on that team don't believe that they can win with Blake Bortles, you almost have to make the move. And I hate this like kind of armchair psychology that, you know, I'm putting out there, but I think this is something that football coaches and, you know, front offices actually do care about. And I don't think we can discount that possibility right now with the Jaguars. Like I think there's a possibility that Bortles has been bad enough more recently that the players there are just ready for anything else, even if that is Chad Henney. Now, it might only take two or three weeks of Chad Henney before they go, I've made a huge mistake, you know, <laughs> a la Joe Bluth, and say, we, we got to get Bortles back as bad as Bortles was. But, yeah, I, I can see the flip side where, you know, the team from a like a chemistry standpoint would want Henney to get in there. But, again, that's super narrative heavy. There's not a whole lot of – actual like data or analysis behind that, unfortunately. So I don't want to dwell too much on it. Let's get to a guy that you were high on 
when we were talking last about the draft, and that's Pat Mahomes. And he's really played well in the preseason. Alex Smith, this looked pretty good, too. And Andy Reid, you know, stumped for Alex Smith in the media. He reported or he stated that, you know, you know, Smith is the QB1. There's no gray area. I think that was according to a, a beat report from Therese Paylor, uh, who's a, a Chiefs guy. Where does Mahomes rank for you versus the other quarterbacks who probably are going to require some sort of injury to get on the field and unlock their upside? So, like, what other – are there any other QBs that you are more invested in or more interested in in that kind of group of guys? It, it would be difficult for me to put Mahomes ahead of a guy like Garoppolo. <clears throat> Even though I think, like the obviously the, you know, the likelihood of, of a Brady injury probably isn't as good as a Smith injury, but you know we already know that Garoppolo is probably pretty good, or at least in this offense he's been productive. So I'd probably take Garoppolo over Mahomes, but after that, I, I mean Mahomes is a dude. Like uh, I think I talked the last time I was I was on the show just about how good Andy Reid quarterbacks typically are, especially those guys who can run like Mahomes, very similar like a Donovan McNabb type of QB. And Mahomes has looked really good. And <clears throat> I think that, that, you know, that's, that shouldn't be surprising to people who, who know about Mahomes. But I mean, he's really going to push Alex Smith all year. And it seems like early on that's gotten actually like a little bit of a better version of Alex Smith out of him. I, I think that that's definitely, you know, one of those situations where competition brings the best out of everyone. Uh, but I'm I'm trying to get Mahomes in basically all my two QB drafts because I feel like he's he could be end up being the the perfect combination of you know really good high upside weeks and getting those weeks towards the the end of the season when you really need them. Yeah, I'm with you. I actually wrote him up in a fantasy pros little survey blurb thing this week or or no last week about you know, which late round lottery tickets are you taking? And I tried to spin it towards that two QB mentality. And Mahomes is a guy who I'm aggressively going after in those drafts right now, because yeah, he, the, the upside is there. We see the talent and admittedly it's preseason. So there's, there's a lot that could still go wrong if he's under center in the regular season, but the ability is there. And we know that Smith is nothing really special in terms of a quarterback. So yeah, it's, it's worth the shot. If you have a bench that's deep enough for a guy like Mahomes and he, he's a guy that I think that, a lot of two QB drafters are ignoring because he's not in the middle of a quarterback competition, like a dedicated one, like uh, say the Broncos where Trevor Simeon has once again, defeated Paxton Lynch. Are you still going to be willing to draft Lynch in two quarterback leagues kind of speculatively like you would Mahomes? Probably, but I would expect that price to stay down and probably be even lower than it is now for Lynch. That, that would be kind of the onus there. Like I, I think it's likely that he ends up starting at least a couple games just because he did last year. I feel like the fact that the team was willing to make it an open competition again basically says like, Hey man, like we're really trying to give you this thing. Like, <laughs> can you please just be good so that, so that we could let you start games? So uh, I could see the leash on Simeon being relatively short, especially if Denver proves to be again, like a championship caliber defense that can't really produce points. So. Lynch is definitely still draftable, but I'm not nearly as interested as I was a month ago. Yeah, you and me both. I'm right on the same page. Let's keep going. Uh, Joe Flacco, still not practicing. How worried should we be about him? I'm not super worried just because I think that Flacco's price is already really low. Uh, I'm worried in the standpoint that like backs uh, are one thing I try not to mess with. I think that that's something that could... You know, even if when he comes back, even if he's ready for week one, I could definitely see a season being shortened as a result, but. Tony Romo? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but Flacco's still going very late, and I do really like the weapons. I think Macklin is a really huge upgrade for him, as is Danny Woodhead, uh, in terms of running backs who are catching passes. So I, I actually think that Flacco could get a little bit closer to league average touchdown rate this year, and <laughs> when you consider the volume, that uh that could actually be like a pretty valuable season considering his draft cost. That was such a backhanded compliment. He can get closer to league average. That's <laughs> not not good. Not good, Joe. Uh elite. Yeah, he's so elite. I um yeah, I don't know. I I look at him and I'm terrified because like you, I see back injury and I go like, "Whoa, hold on, pump the brakes. I don't know if I can draft this guy." Like even if he is there week 1, we don't know how long that's going to last. 
But at the same time, because there is that uncertainty and because, like you said, there there's room for him to improve upon his previous you know couple seasons, he could be an immense value for two quarterback drafters. And I, I think it all comes down to your risk tolerance and who your QB1 is and how good you feel about the rest of your roster. But I could definitely see a situation where Joe Flacco is a guy who maybe I would pick a little more aggressively in those mid-rounds, uh, maybe take him over a guy like Alex Smith. Or, um, I don't know, I'm even trying to think of, like, maybe Carson Wentz, who's getting, you know, a fair amount of buzz. Like, where would you fall between those two guys? Would you draft Flacco or Wentz first? I would take Wentz first, just because I do like the addition of Jeffrey, and again, the pass volume is there. But I would be taking Flacco over someone like Carson Palmer. I think I have those guys, like, right back to back in my ranking. Right okay, yeah. So I'd probably still rather have Palmer, just because, I don't know, I, I like his offense a little bit more the pieces around him but anyway any other recent storylines from the preseasons that have grabbed your interest so far and how they apply to fantasy like is there anything that's kind of jumped out to you so far i'm really i'm really intrigued by this whole jay cutler thinks that parker is a Mm -hmm. faster alshon jeffrey thing i i I mean i I went to look at the numbers because i was like let me see if this is if this like could actually hold water and I just tweeted this out, I think, last night or two nights ago. But through their first two seasons, Alshon and Parker had identical yards per target and identical touchdown rates. So granted, uh, about 50 more targets, 60 more targets for Jeffrey than Parker. But it seems like it's at least a non-ridiculous comparison. I'm not really that surprised because Cutler definitely seems to favor the guys who can target down the field. Basically not Jarvis Landry. <laughs> so uh, I think that this is going to end up making Parker a decent value. I, I don't think that the pass volume is ever going to get too crazy in Miami. They're pretty clearly a team that wants to run the ball in all game scripts. But if Parker can at least tighten down that, you know, you know, that target profile, you know, if you can get closer to Jarvis Landry in total targets than, you know, 110 targets, 115 targets could make for a breakout season. That's a very interesting situation for sure. I'm starting to look a little more closely, you know, with each week at the running back committees and competitions that are going on. Uh, I think that just understanding those running back depth charts is, is a pretty good way to find hits on the waiver wire early in the season and, you know, find hits at the end of your drafts too. So like even in Miami, like looking at a guy like Damian Williams as a potential guy to, to stash on your roster because we know that, Jay Ajayi doesn't have actual knees anymore, but also looking at teams like Washington, we're starting to see Kelly shake out as the favorite there. I think that Seattle is interesting. I don't know. I I, I think that that's part of why I like drafting all throughout the offseason. You know, things like best ball leagues, because you can kind of see those values shift from, you know, player to player in in those committees. Um, And that actually brings us to a good spot to take a break. And we can talk about the sponsor of this podcast, and that's Play Draft. Um, I'm doing more and more of their snake draft best ball leagues as the season gets closer. They offer slow drafts too, but we're kind of running out of time in the preseason to to the point where those slow drafts are going to have time to wrap up uh, before the season starts. And so these quick, you know, snake draft uh, best ball leagues are, are really fun, you know, and, and they move uh, short timers, 30 seconds per pick. So it's easy to find breaks, you know, in the middle of my schedule to jam in another draft. And there's no in-season management required because it's a best ball league, right? Play Draft automatically selects your best possible lineup every week. Uh, entries start at just 3 bucks, and I've talked about this before, but if you're playing for real cash prizes, that helps weed out any drafters who might screw around with their picks, you know, like the people you might usually find in a mock draft room. Um, the best part about signing up for Play Draft through this podcast is that you get your first draft for free with your deposit. Uh, here's how you do that. You go to playdraft.com slash TWOQB, sign up using the same promo code TWOQB, uh, with your first deposit, you'll get a ticket to get your first best ball draft for free. So that's playdraft.com slash 2QB with the promo code 2QB, all spelled out with letters. Uh, but let's keep going. Let's get into some kind of more general talk around the league. Like, I think a lot of folks are going to be drafting in the next two and a half weeks. And so I want to talk about kind of draft strategy at large. And I want to dive in on some situations that I feel like I've probably been neglecting a little bit too much on the podcast. I want to start with San Francisco. Um, Brian Hoyer is a guy who 
you know, seems to have a fair amount of optimism surrounding him in terms of fantasy production. Like people see him as a late round quarterback value. And I was looking at our rankings at 2QBs.com earlier today, and I noticed that you're a little bit lower on Hoyer than most of the rest of us who have rankings there. Essentially, where you have Hoyer, we have Jared Goff and vice versa, where we're all higher on Hoyer, but you're higher on Goff. I imagine that's because you see a little bit more job security with Goff, and you just talked earlier about how you're starting to see the the convergence of you know pieces and uh, you know criteria for the Rams to start getting better. But can you explain the difference between those two quarterbacks, and maybe touch on why you might be a little further down on Hoyer than you know other QBs in that low end late round tier? Yeah, I mean the job security for me is huge because I think that if you're going to draft a guy. Even late in your drafts, as a QB3 or QB4, like starts have value in two quarterback formats more than any other format. So I feel like the fact that Goff really outside of injury or just like a completely uh, terrible season, like he's going to start all 16 games. Whereas Hoyer, the route that the 49ers are going, like it wouldn't surprise me if they try to get a look at CJ Bethard or you know, Matt Barkley came in, like nothing would really shock me with what San Francisco does. So I think from that perspective, Goff has a leg up. I also just like the offense better in in LA, which is crazy to say, but blowing my I mean, mind Hoyer, again. Yeah, like well, like Hoyer is really just throwing to one guy, right? Like Pierre Garcon is good and everyone else is like a huge question mark. Right? Like Aldrick Robinson, Marquise Goodwin. Uh, Jeremy Curley, Trent Taylor, Vance McDonald, like all these guys are, are complete, complete question marks. And it just, it wouldn't surprise me at all if none of them were any good and Hoyer was struggling because he can only really throw to one guy. I, I, kind of the third and final point here is that I like quarterbacks who have shots to play in positive game script. I think that by virtue of the Rams having a good defense, they can keep some games close. And I don't really think the 49ers, though they, did draft some pieces on defense. I don't think that their defense is good enough to keep them in games and, you know, allow Hoyer basically to not be throwing into like, uh, I don't know, eight, eight man coverage, seven man coverage on a pretty consistent basis. That's not really plus EV. Yeah. I think you're giving Vance McDonald a little bit too little credit, but it, you're right. It is a very unknown situation there. Um, and I think your point about the Niners' defense is a good one. I think they'll be better than they were last year, and just by the virtue of the fact that Chip Kelly isn't there, they won't be throwing nearly as much, um, even in spite of the fact that their defense is bad. I like that take in terms of favoring Goff, but um, getting back to those other pieces in the Niners' offense, I kind of want to pick your brain about your general approach to drafting fantasy players from bad teams. Uh you mentioned all, all those receiving options that Hoyer has, but what about a guy like Carlos Hyde? Like he's a player who we see being drafted regularly in that like round three to round six range, depending upon the type of format you're in and you know how much people care about running backs. How do how how does like a, a team outlook affect your your ability or your willingness to draft a guy like Carlos Hyde? Or and you can apply this to other bad teams as well, like the Browns or Jets, whatever. How do you approach that? I just don't like to take running backs on bad teams because I, I think that game script is so critical to rushing production, especially in terms of scoring, uh, like touchdowns, that I, I just won't have – I just won't be drafting Carlos Hyde. I mean, he's a guy that maybe like – maybe in DFS, if there's a game where the Niners are projected to play close, I could play Carlos Hyde. But I don't want to really own him because I just see a lot of – you know, 12 carries for 40 yard lines with no touchdowns because they were giving them the ball early and then they gave a bunch of points and they were throwing a bunch. So I'm not really going to be drafting someone like Carlos Hyde. I, I don't mind drafting pass catchers because obviously if the game script is negative, you're going to see a lot more passing and game script doesn't really affect receivers like it does quarterbacks. We don't really care as much about interceptions, uh, you know, because that just means that more passes later will probably be going to those receiving options. So I'm really into Garcon. He's like a top 15 receiver for me. But the other guys, I don't really have an interest in because I'm not really sure how good they are. So if, if you're avoiding guys like Carlos Hyde, how does that filter into your roster construction? Because I, when I look at ADP, you know, most of the running backs in those, you know, kind of 
not early rounds, but like the first vestiges of the mid rounds, that's where, you know, a lot of those good talent, bad team backs land. So are you just avoiding the position at large in that space for the most part? Or are there other running backs who you think are, you know, sneaky, better values that, you, you know, maybe the consensus has ranked behind the more, you know, talented guys like Hyde, but maybe you're pushing up into that, you know, fourth or fifth round range because you like their offense better. How does that, does this question make sense? Like, how does that filter into the teams you're drafting? I guess it's like a twofold thing, right? Like, if I am going to draft a running back on a bad team at all, or like a mid-tier kind of running back, like, I do want him to catch passes. Okay. And I think that I can get a lot of those kind of guys later in drafts. So, I, I just really haven't been drafting many running backs at all. Like, I, I, I am drafting like at most one running back in like the first nine or ten rounds of most of my drafts right now. Okay. I mean, that's a fair answer. I, I, you're just avoiding the position at large in the early rounds. I get that. That's just the classic zero RB approach. Um, you know, one running back situation that I've been kind of interested in is, is the one in Detroit. We saw Amir Abdullah get his share of buzz now that he's healthy again, but this backfield still looks really crowded to me with Theoretic, uh, Zach Zenner, you know, Dwayne Washington. It, I'm, I worry about Abdullah. He's kind of in that same range as Hyde in terms of, you know, I feel like he's being overvalued just because there's this perception that he's a number one running back. The Detroit offense is clearly better than the San Francisco offense. So I think that there's maybe more value for Amir Abdullah to have if he's given the right role. I'm just worried he doesn't have the right role. And I kind of want to springboard this off into a discussion of the Lions offense in general, because I haven't talked about them a whole lot on the podcast. What do you, let's start with the running backs. Like, how do you see that shaking out? Is Amir Abdullah a guy that you're willing to draft or is he in that same range where he's being drafted too highly for you to consider him? I mean, I'm definitely going zero Abdullah this year. <laughs> um, I just don't, I think that if you're an average with the talent, you're missing a lot of the context. And the context is just not that good. Detroit has the least number of carries of any team over the last three seasons. As a team, they've averaged 3.7 yards per carry over that span. And they are 28th in rushing touchdowns over that span. And they also will be without Taylor Decker for you know, X number of weeks, but probably at least somewhat significant a period of time. So we're talking about a team that doesn't really run the ball that much, that is missing one of their better offensive linemen, if not their best offensive linemen. And this is still a backfield that has talented players outside of Abdullah. Theoretic is, I would say, pretty locked into his role as a pass catcher. He's been really effective in that role. I don't really see a reason why they would all of a sudden siphon a bunch of that work to Abdullah when Riddick's been getting it done. And I, I still think that Zach Zenner is pretty good. He was uh, decently productive last season in his opportunity, but I think at the very least he projected someone that can fill in, be a good spell back, get some touches maybe inside the red zone, and he also can catch some passes. So if you're kind of figuring out Abdullah's range of outcomes, like, yeah, there is a chance, I guess, that he is the number one running back and takes some receiving work but there's also like a really good shot that he's just like a first and second down back between the 20s which is i'm not really that interested in yeah so let's turn our eyes to the receivers there and kenny galladay is getting a ton of hype right now i'm not really on board with this because he's still a rookie and golden tate and marvin jones are still there how are you valuing those three guys and i mean are you buying into the the galladay hype machine or are you drafting you know, the Tates and the Joneses uh, from this offense? Well, I'm not buying in terms of redraft. I think that in Dynasty... Oh, yeah, Dynasty is a different story for sure. Yeah, in Dynasty, you probably missed your window, which is unfortunate, you know, if you're into that kind of thing. I I think that long-term, he's going to be a good player. But this year just doesn't really make that much sense to me. I mean, you're basically asking him to do what Anquan Bolden did last year, like as a rookie. It it doesn't really seem like that that feasible of of a... of a thing to buy. I would say with respect to the two main guys in the passing game, I'm lower on Golden Tate than most. I think that he accrued a lot of his volume last year as a result of Riddick being hurt. Totally and agree. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, 
I wouldn't mind Tate if he was going a little bit later, but I'd really just rather draft Marvin Jones in like rounds nine through eleven. Because if you look at like his air yards profile, you look at a lot of the stuff that Josh Hermsmeyer's done at Rotovis with Air Yards and uh, at airyards.com, their air yards profiles are really similar. So when you consider that they're seeing basically similar volume, now they're seeing it differently because Tate is seeing it over a higher volume of targets, whereas Jones is being targeted more consistently down the field. But Jones has, first of all, he has weekly upside because he can take one of these long targets to the house. He could, you know, obviously make a big play. But he also has just, you know, long-term season-long upside in this, from the standpoint that if they're just a little more consistent in targeting him and if they maybe give him a little more action in all depths of the field, he's going to really outproduce his, his draft position. Yeah, I like that. I've been drafting him like crazy in a, in a bunch of different leagues. Um, how do all these factors kind of congeal in your evaluation of when to draft Matthew Stafford? Is he a guy that you're ending up with at all? I have some Stafford. I mean, he's fine. Like, yeah. Perfect. Like Perfect just... explanation of Stafford's value. <laughs> yeah, like, you know what you're going to get. Like, he's probably going to finish the season somewhere between, like, QB 8 and QB 14 or 15. It uh, doesn't really have to me that elite QB upside anymore, but you know the volume's going to be there. So I, I he's fine. Like <laughs> you can draft him. Like he's a guy that you can get as your QB one and two QB formats, and feel really comfortable with it. He's just not a guy that's going to win you a, a league. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, in a two QB league, that's sometimes that's the type of quarterback you want, especially if you are using those early quote unquote league winning picks on the elite guys at other positions. Like if you're drafting running backs and wide receivers in the first, however many rounds, a guy like Stafford doesn't have to, you know, completely outproduce his ADP. He just needs to give you stable production. And that's exactly what he's good for. He does. That's that's what he does. That's his job. Um, two other guys kind of in a similar vein are Phillip Rivers and Derek Carr. And I have these guys really close to my rankings. I'm back to back uh, QBs 13 and 14, but you have, Rivers significantly higher than Carr. You have Rivers at QB10 uh, and Carr at QB18. What to you makes Rivers the clearly better fantasy option? Well, I'm I'm not really ready to crown Carr yet as like the next great NFL quarterback. I, I do like him. Like I think that he would be awesome to coach. Like he's a mother effer, if I can say that on the show. You know what I mean? Like oh, you just... could say say the harsh version <laughs> if you wanted to. <laughs> He just cares about football. Like I, I love Derek Carr, but I just think that Philip Rivers is a Hall of Fame level quarterback, and the weapons there, the cupboard went from kind of bare to being super full. I mean, getting Keenan Allen back is tremendous. Tyrell Williams is He's now awesome. your number two. Yeah. Uh, if they get anything out of Mike Williams this year, that's a plus, and they have two good tight ends. Like I, I just think that this team offensively is completely stacked, and you look at. You look at Oakland, like they have Amari Cooper, who's awesome. They have Michael Crabtree, who's very consistent. But behind those two guys, they really don't have much of anything at all. And they do also have a running back in Marshawn Lynch, who is probably going to be a, a difference maker in the red zone and on the goal line. So I could see, you know, that that really strong touchdown rate that Carr has. I could definitely see that coming back to the pack this year as well. And that might be the difference for me in that you see Lynch as a you know, a detriment to Carr's value. And I see Lynch and I am just worried about him being ready to carry a full workload. And, and I see that, and I see DeAndre Washington and Jalen Richard as maybe the backs who are better suited for that offense. And that makes me like Carr a little bit more. But again, I, I think these guys are close. And I think that honestly, when I said that you had one at QB 10 and the other at QB 18, like the difference for me between QB 10 and QB 18 is so small in the first place that I, I totally get that ranking. It just kind of depends on, where you want to put your ships at the beginning of the year in these drafts. And, and I don't mind treating most of the, these players as similar values. The problem is, is that when it comes to rankings, you have to pick one or over the other, and it's going to end up with, you know, these weird gray areas like this where, you know, I think these guys are pretty close, but you know, pretty close is relative. Uh, it's not linear like, like rankings are. Um, I want to talk a little bit of general strategy with you to kind of close the episode down here. And, I feel like I don't do enough talk on the podcast about the early rounds, about what you do with your first picks. And those are probably the most common questions that we see on Twitter, uh, in our emails and stuff. It's like, I drew this pick, what should I do? And those sorts of questions are kind of easy to answer because like we have pretty 
well canned responses in terms of which players we like the most and what types of players we like the most. It is important to sort that out for yourself as you're, you know, developing your own draft strategy because what you do in the first couple rounds is going to dictate what you have to do in the later rounds, like how you're going to catch up at the positions that you chose to neglect, right? That's opportunity cost. That's what you were talking about earlier with, with zero RB and avoiding running backs early. Um, so I want to get your, you know, input on, on what you're doing for the early rounds. Like, are you targeting certain positions? Like, it sounds like you're going wide receiver most of the time, but how do you change your strategy based upon where you're drafting? Like if you're in the early, the middle or the late first round, and are there certain players that if they fall to you in certain spots will make you pivot, you know, off of your, you know, your baseline strategy and move into something else? I mean, I'm just looking to pound receivers early in a two QB format. I want to get at least one quarterback in the first five rounds, kind of depending on the way the draft is going. I'll wait a little bit on that QB2 spot. I, I like to get my QB2 in a range where I feel like there could be a run coming. So yeah. uh, if I can get it in, if I can be even like the first guy to grab a QB2, or well, probably not, probably wouldn't be the first guy, but second or third guy to grab my second quarterback when there's kind of just like a a bunch of quarterbacks that are ready to burst off the board and I get my pick, like that's something that I'm, I'm definitely looking to do. But I would say that in general, um, targeting, uh, I'm just targeting receivers. I want to really nail that position early. I think that late, there's a lot of really good pass catching running backs you can get this year. And, you know, for the most part, that strategy isn't going to change just because I feel like a lot of the guys that I like, at least right now, are, are undervalued. So if I if I have to take them a little earlier than maybe ADP suggests, I'm I'm pretty okay with that. Let's give the listeners a little bit more specific context. Like you say there are a lot of pass catching receivers available late that you like. Who who are some of those players? Like is theoretic in that group? Like who else is is there for you in those mid to late rounds that you're targeting at the running back position? Yeah, Riddick's definitely someone that you can draft late. I mean obviously he just continues to catch 50, 60 passes, like I think that you can pretty much lock that in. But even later than him, I, I'm really loving Duke Johnson. Again, he has had over 50 receptions each of his first two seasons. He was a workhorse at University of Miami, so I, I think that if anything did happen to Isaiah Crowell, that Duke could assume you know a 200 plus carry role on top of that awesome receiving role. I mean, they talked about putting him in the slot more and stuff like that on top of that, so. I'm not really sure like how much room for growth he has in receptions, but I feel really safe about him getting it done and being a usable PPR back. I feel pretty similarly about CJ Procise. I think the reception floor is a little lower, probably closer to 40, but I, he's like the only running back they have that is a really good pass catcher. And, you know, in my opinion, I think he's the best running back they have, period. So as the season progresses, I definitely see him being in position to accrue more work. He plays in a really efficient passing offense, so I, I like his opportunity there as well. Those are probably the two main guys that I'm looking to get in like that nine-plus round territory. How do you feel about Shane Vereen? I'm in. I'm in on Vereen. I, I want to get him, obviously, like pretty late, but he's the best Giants running back, in my opinion. He's at least the best value. Uh, again, he's averaged over three receptions per game in his time with the Giants, so... You know, if you want, if you want someone that you know, you could at least put in your lineup and and get a decent, uh, you know, a decent score, not a le- a week winning score, but a quality score. Like Green is that kind of guy. So let's go back to that discussion about the first round. If you draw like a top two pick, are you passing up Le'Veon Bell and David Johnson to take a receiver? Are you that dedicated to zero RB that you'll pass over, you know, the elite pass catching workhorse running backs? I'm going for Antonio Brown. I mean, I would take Antonio Brown first. I think that his body of work overall is much better than any player at a period, uh, especially at running back. I mean, DJ had the highest PPR score of the last three years last season, uh, but Brown has, you know, the next two highest scores. So he, he has still that elite upside. He's been the receiver one for three straight years the year before. Four years ago, he was the wide receiver three. Like he's just super consistent, and I am. I feel so much safer with having him than having these running backs because I feel like the running backs are more likely to get hurt. 
uh, you know, the roles for a lot of these guys change really quickly. I mean, what if having Chris Johnson back all of a sudden means that they're going to give just a little bit less work to David Johnson? Like that probably ends up being pretty big. Or what if Le'Veon Bell gets suspended again or gets hurt or something happens to Ben or, you know, like, I just feel like there's so many different ways for things to go wrong for the running backs. And I think that Brown is pretty well insulated. Yeah. And I think there is something to be said about. Johnson being a little riskier than we want to admit. I mean, this is just like a, a common problem with fantasy analysis and in general is that we look back at the previous year and we assign far too much weight to that season. And David Johnson's coming off just an epic fantasy year, kind of similar to what Cam Newton did two years ago, right? And all of a sudden Cam Newton was the QB1. He was going ahead of Rodgers and Luck and Brady and Breeze. And you could kind of look at the profile of his career before that. Now, granted, with David Johnson, we don't have that necessarily, but you could kind of tell that that was an outlier season. And even if Cam Newton was really good again, he probably wasn't going to be quite as good as he was in 2015. And I think that there is a strong possibility that something like that happens again this year with David Johnson. I'm not even sure if he should be the running back one over Le'Veon Bell. Like, if I had to choose between the two, like, I, I think that just variance in general makes us uh, or it makes me a little hesitant to, you know, proclaim, oh, David Johnson's the surefire, you know, number one running back. Now, I'd probably still draft him as such because you know, I do think he is very good. And, and in spite of the fact that, you know, last year could have been an outlier, everything else points to him just being that, you know, elite sort of talent. And I think you can, you can take that to the bank for what it's worth. I, I just don't know if it's as much of a no brainer as, as a lot of us make it out to be. And I, and I really like the fact that you, kind of lay out that case for Antonio Brown as a guy who still could be the number one pick because last year, as we were entering the 2016 season, Antonio Brown was the number one pick and he delivered, you know, like this isn't rocket science. Sometimes it's like we, we kind of forget the analysis that we did a year ago because there's so much new data from the previous season. Let's move on to some, actually I had one more question for you about the, the early rounds and Based upon what you said and, and about, you know, pass catching running backs, waiting at the position, it seems like you're thinking about this question from a PPR point of view. If you're playing in a standard league, I assume that changes your approach, correct? Oh, yeah, it completely changes it. I, in standard, I'm basically doing the opposite. Like, I'm going to really pound the running back position just because I think that, I mean, obviously the scoring, the scoring changes a ton. And I think that, like, in standard, we're, we're stripping out now all these points for catches. That means, first of all, that your quarterbacks, what they score relative to their positions is going to improve. So I'm definitely willing to spend maybe a little bit more for those studs. Mm -hmm. You know, the Breeze, the Brady, the Rodgers. Uh, and at running back, I, I want guys who have really high touchdown upside. I want guys who can accrue a lot of touches. Uh, you know, that, those things become a lot more valuable when I can't get a point just for catching the football. Right. Yeah. I like that. Um, let's do a little bit of auction talk here. And this is something that we constantly get calls for more analysis on, um, on our Twitter account and by email. It's like, Hey, tell us more about your auction strategies. So Anthony, when it comes to your auction outlook, I assume that your strategy kind of mirrors what you would do in a snake draft where you're looking to pay up four wide receivers in PPR or four running backs in standard. Um, and you would look to find values uh, like lower dollar picks for, you know, the other positions. Is, is that in the right area of where you're at? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, the, the main difference, I guess, in how I approach snake and auction is just that I probably don't end up with nearly as many guys that go in the middle rounds, rounds five to Nine, I probably don't get many of those guys in auctions because I'm trying to accrue as many stud level players. You know, I think every year you could probably draw the line in a different spot, but you know, just say you think the top 20 players are much better than everybody else. Like I want to get as many of those guys as I possibly can. And then I'll, I'll worry about the rest of my roster after because you know, fantasy as much as we love the sleepers and the values and all that stuff, like it, it is a, a star and stud heavy game. And if you have the studs and they stay healthy, uh, you're going to do really well. So when you're nominating players, when it's your turn to bring up a player for the auction, does that mean that you're throwing out those mid-level types, those, you know, 
fourth round type players, fifth round type players when it's your turn to nominate? Yeah, I like to mix it up. I mean, I, early, <laughs> I really like to nominate like my defense, my kicker, like really early in the draft. Classic because, move. Yep. Yeah, classic, right? Like either I get them for a dollar or I, you know, someone else pays more than I'm willing to spend for a defense or a kicker. But, uh, yeah, in general, I would say I, I would make most of my nominations on players that I don't want, either quarterbacks I'm not interested in, especially in 2QB where those guys will probably go for a pretty penny when all the money's available, or just like those mid-round players, you know, like your Carlos Hyde's, your, um, I don't know, like just anyone really that I'm not interested in drafting, I, I would nominate. Yeah, the quarterback situation for an auction is one of the biggest differences, like between a one QB and a two QB league. I mean, obviously it's right there in the title, but it doesn't, it shows up in snake draft to some extent, but I mean, you can still do a snake draft two QB where if you're playing with people who are sharp enough, they'll continue to wait at the quarterback position as long as possible before jumping in. Auctions turn that on its ear a little bit because you can actually see the difference in value between a guy like Aaron Rodgers and a guy like Carson Palmer or, I don't know, any of those mid-tier guys like Derek Carr, Phillip Rivers, Andy Dalton. What is your approach to buying quarterbacks in two QB auctions? Are are you targeting those guys in the mid-tiers? Because that seems like a spot where you can mine some value because, like we talked about earlier, there's a lot of gray area between QB 10 and QB 20. Yeah, and I'm all about drafting like the stigma quarterbacks yes the guys the guys that no one thinks are any good uh because you just get them for you get them for a few dollars less like a guy like tyrod right now is like the perfect time to buy blake bortles bortles love it like i and like when you look at your lineup you feel a little gross oh yeah but but you <laughs> yeah but you're gonna get these guys that at such a bargain compared to the guys in their range of outcomes like i you know we talked about this i talked about this on the show with you at least three times that the difference from like QB nine to QB fifteen is is not that much, and then after that, like a lot of those guys are the same. So it's like why you really get to exploit that difference so much better because you know like in a snake draft, ADP basically forces guys to eventually come off the board, but in an auction, you know there's a chance that you bid on a guy and, and people aren't that interested. They just don't bid on them, and you get them for a really cheap price. So I I really think that. Anytime you can take advantage of bias, you want to do it, and I definitely do it with those quarterbacks. Yeah, the one thing that I have to bring up here, and this is something that I see in every two quarterback auction I ever see or I ever I ever do, is the fact that you can try to wait for those values, but eventually there's a tipping point between you know when it's uh, when it's time to buy your quarterbacks and when quarterbacks are going to be drastically overvalued because people are scrambling to get them, and. Right. I think you need to be really mindful of not waiting too long to get your two starters. Now, you can wait to get your third QB, especially if it's super flex. Uh, but it, in general, even if you feel like you're overpaying for you know the 13th quarterback nominated, sometimes you have to do that just so you don't end up drastically overpaying for the 25th quarterback nominated. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think we've all kind of ended up in that spot. And that's like pretty common, I would say, for auctions at all positions, right? Like for sure. Some, sometimes the whole room is waiting for the for the same few guys, and you end up would you end up would have had better better off like just buying the guy that came off the board like fourth, first or second. Right, but unlike running back or wide receiver, quarterback supply is inherently more limited. There's only one starter per team in any given week, and that means that. When you do end up at the bot, like with the last remaining, you know, playable guys left, it just becomes even more of a, a fist fight to draft those guys. Whereas, like, you might miss out on, say, the last good wide receiver because you didn't save enough auction dollars, but there are still going to be plenty of, you know, late round lottery pick type of guys that you can target with. You, you can spread out, you know, your dollars to more players who are riskier, right? And hope that one hits. Quarterback, you don't really have that. I mean, there. While we we talk at two QBs a lot about how there are going to be quarterbacks that come into value, like last year, fifty-four different quarterbacks started a game, but still, like fifty-four is nothing compared to the number of like wide receivers or running backs who are at one point or another relevant last year in the fantasy season. Like quarterback is still the most limited position, even in two quarterback leagues. That 
if you wait too long, you're going to get gouged on price. And, you know, maybe if you save your money, you can get away with that. Uh, and you can be the guy who overpays for the last, you know, startable QB left. But I prefer to kind of force the issue a little earlier in the auction and target those guys who are, you know, like you said, the guys that other people are nominating because they don't want. And if you can get in on them earlier, like you might end up paying a little bit more than you want for a guy like Philip Rivers or even Matt Ryan. But that's better than, you know, paying, you know, $30 for Alex Smith because he's the last good QB left. Um, yeah. Let's um, let's turn to a different position. And, you know, in two quarterback and super flex leagues, tight end becomes the one position that's a singleton where you only start one a week. Now, I understand there are some leagues where you can flex a tight end and that does change things a little bit. But in general, most people are only ever going to want to start one tight end in any given week. So how aggressively do you draft the position into QB and Superflex leagues? And how is it different than your approach in one quarterback leagues? Or is it different at all? It's not terribly different. And I'm going to preface this all by saying that I'm probably way too enthusiastic about tight ends. Like I, it's probably a huge hole in my game, honestly. But every year, I just fall in love with the stud tight ends. Because I just think that it gives you a really strong weekly advantage. Like I just love that you get that elite range of outcomes at the position, uh, you know, and in two quarterback formats, especially those guys fall even later than they do in the single quarterback format. So, you know, your, your Rob Gronkowski's are going maybe in round three, maybe you get your Travis Kelsey in round four, Jordan Reed in round five, you know, like, and that is something that I'm always really going to be interested in. Now in a standard, in a single quarterback league, I'm kind of willing and open to drafting a tight end for the flex. I'm probably never going to do that in a two QB just because, you know, with two quarterbacks now, there's even more positions that I need to, to right. prioritize and fill. Like I, I just no way I could spend like two high round quarter, uh, you know, picks on a tight end, but I'm still looking to get one of those top three guys in most of my drafts. Uh, just because I, I think that. When everything breaks right, they're probably first-round players. And this year, at least in particular, they're growing much later than that. Is there a particular guy, you know, maybe besides Gronkowski, that you're targeting from that Tier 2 or Tier 3 of tight end where, where you have that elite upside? Yeah, I mean, Kelsey's my tight end one. So I think that he's like a super value. I just think that the targets are going to be flowing in Kansas City for him and you know, you get a tight end that has, you know, top 15 target upside in the NFL. Like that's, that's pretty huge. And I, I just need to continue to give out shouts to, to Jordan Reed because he's been the tight end one the last two years in points per game. Like, like the production is super proven at this point. Um, you know, and yeah, you got to worry about the injuries, but you can kind of piece that together. And both of those guys are the best red zone threats on their team, which is something that you really want to look for at the tight end position because that position is all about touchdowns. The worry I have with Kelsey is that maybe the Chiefs won't be in the red zone often enough for him to really capitalize on that. Reed, I don't have that worry at all. The worry with him, of course, is just health. So we'll see. I'm with you in the sense that in a 2QB league, I like the value I get on the elite tight ends more. But like you said, because you have to draft more of other positions, namely the quarterback position in those early rounds, I, I do still tend to wait at tight end. Um, but with that said, like if Jimmy Graham or Greg Olson is falling, you know, into the sixth or seventh or eighth round, like that's when I'm going to start to think about it because uh, those guys do have big upside for their position relative to kind of the pack. Um, now if I don't end up with one of those guys, I'm trying to wait as long as possible and just maybe pick up two or three guys and hope that one of them hits. Like I've ended up with Kobe Fleener a lot this year. Um, and I go to a lot of the, the, the really cheap late round guys over and over again, like Jason Witten, Charles Clay. And I think that that strategy can work, but you have to be better at playing the matchups, which is not easy at tight end. It's more of a crapshoot. So uh, there's safety in having one of those elite guys. But I don't know. I, I also really value having a strong advantage, not just at you know wide receiver one and wide receiver two, but also wide receiver three or at running back three if I can. And so that tends to that tends to lead me to waiting more on tight end than than drafting them early. 
but I mix it up. I, I guess I draft enough to the point where I, I like to play both ways. And that, that's something I recommend as well. If you're drafting out there, draft more teams so that you can play around with different strategies and see what works for you. Because sometimes, even if you think it's perfect, you know, in the preseason, you, you might just screw, get screwed by variance or whatever. Um, that idea of kind of looking for depth across all positions is something that I think is fascinating and, and super important for fantasy. It's like we were just talking about tight end. I won't really draft backups very often because I like to use the waiver wire as my bench for that particular position. And it, you know, frees up more roster space for me to take chances at running back and wide receiver. So even if I do end up with a guy like Jason Witten or Charles Clay as my tight end one, I don't necessarily always back them up. Uh, because I, I like having that depth at the other positions because, you know, those lottery tickets can pay off. How do you decide how much bench space to dedicate to those more important positions like running back and wide receiver? Like you talk a lot about zero RB and how you like to draft wide receivers early, but do you end up drafting a higher volume of running backs in the later rounds because of that? Well, it definitely depends on the depth of the bench, but I would say in general, I try to allocate like a certain number of spots to quarterback and tight end. And then I basically just split the rest of it at running back and wide receiver. So like I, I know I'm drafting a lot of high quality receivers early in drafts. So I'll pretty much say in my rankings, you know, like I, I'm just throwing a name out there. Like Marvin Jones is like the last, the last receiver that I would probably take in a, in a zero RB draft because he's the last guy that I think could potentially be like a top 24 receiver, you know, and those are really the only kind of guys I'm drafting. So I, I draft a bunch of, I draft a bunch of receivers, you know, maybe Marvin Jones in like an expert format where receivers fly off the board, like maybe he ends up being my wide receiver six. Uh, but maybe in like a, a, you know, a home league or something, I can get him as like my wide receiver eight, you know, like I'll, I want to draft enough receivers where I'm getting, as many shots as I can at those high quality guys. And, you know, I'm, I'm okay with leaving a draft with just five running backs or even four. I've done that too. Uh, just because I, I think that my goal, particularly when I'm going zero RB, which is what I do most frequently, my goal is to get as many WR ones as possible. And then my second goal is obviously to have startable quarterbacks and if possible, I want to get that stud tight end. So uh, the running back really goes by the wayside for me. I, I'm prioritizing the guys who catch passes, so I know I'm probably not taking a zero there. The guys like Steve Johnson, CJ Prosites, I mentioned Vereen, Chris Thompson. Like these are all the kind of guys that I feel like I can draft. You know, and then I can get some shots in at guys that I think have high upside at the position. And if it doesn't pan out, I can just drop them. I can feel pretty comfortable with just trying to get like the waiver wire du jour and seeing if I can make something work out of that. Okay, that's fair enough. Now, do you end up with, like, how often do you end up with a roster where you just have a train wreck at running back because of that? Does it does it happen very often to you, or can you usually piece something together off the waiver wire? I mean, it happens almost every year. Like, I, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, you draft enough teams, like, you're going to end up with at least one where you're just like, what the heck happened here, you know? So, I mean, can you, like, try to, I don't know. Can you maybe explain or, or theorize as to what it goes wrong with those teams that you don't screw up on, I guess, with the other rosters? Like, are there any, I guess, key lessons or takeaways from those particular rosters that don't work out that you could, I don't know, give to the listeners? Yeah, I think sometimes you just need to know when it's time to, to make that move and draft the running back. I, I the, the situations where I routinely get caught at running back are the times where there's like one more receiver on the board that I really like, but like I just really don't need him. Like he'd be like my wide receiver nine, you know, like I just like never will make my lineup. No reason to draft him, but I'm like, oh, like I really like him. So I take him. <laughs> and then like before I pick again, a bunch of running backs that I like go off the board and you know, I end up kind of like screwing myself. So. I think at some point, I think you really need to, you know, we talk about being flexible in drafts. I think you really need to set a line at both positions and say, like, you know, this is like the last receiver that I'm willing to take in this draft. But then also say, like, these are the running backs that I want to target. And I need to group them in a way where when I hit those tough decisions, I can make them a little bit easier. You know, like, I, I think, like, 
maybe choosing between like Kenny Britt and Duke Johnson is something that I'll probably struggle with all, all summer because they're going in similar ranges. Kenny Britt is like always there super late, you know, relative to what I think he'll do. But I also have like a pretty good opportunity to get a bunch of receivers before he comes off the board. So I need to kind of decide like, all right, like if I want to draft Kenny Britt, I should probably take the running back a little bit earlier then so that when I do take him or some other receiver, like I'm not, I'm not overloading the position and hurting myself too drastically at running back. So I think there's just like a lot of, a lot of like being flexible and, and kind of learning where to take certain players. That's something that I'm trying to get better at basically every year. Yeah. I mean, it comes back to that idea of how you allocate the depth. And like you said, there'll be times when you're looking at who's available and the player you want the most is at the wrong position. And you talk about drawing that line, maybe pre-draft saying, okay, here's, you know, the basement of, of wide receiver that I want to draft. Sometimes in the middle of your draft, you have to adjust where that line is. And that's something that is really difficult to explain for sure. And even to get a good feel for it, you have to draft a lot. And I don't know, but I love that idea of trying to get more bites at the apple for, you know, certain positions, whatever you value. And, and for you, that's wide receivers, guys who have the potential to be wide receiver ones. And I think that if you set that line appropriately, that gives you a lot of opportunity after that point in the draft to just load up on, like volume wise on the other positions, namely running back and to take as many swipes at those cheap guys who could blow up or at least could find themselves in stable you know, production, like the pass catchers you mentioned. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's a, a lot to be said about, you know, how you get a feel for where to allocate your depth uh, across each position. Is there anything else, Anthony, that you want to touch on here? I feel like uh, we've got to everything I want to I want to hit, but um, anything else uh, on your mind? No, I'm just really excited. I, we're so close to the season, and I know, like we've talked about this before, like once season starts, we're going to be kind of wrapped up in all the content we have to produce and, and stuff like that. But just anyone that's listening, like just make sure you take time to enjoy the games because yeah, we only we only get so many football games in a year. It only is here for a short period of time, and it's just it really is the best sport on earth. So just make sure that we don't kind of lose sight of that, even when we're rooting for our teams or our fantasy teams. Well, I think with that in mind too, you have to kind of think about making sure that you're enjoying the fantasy process as well. Like if you have a strategy that everyone is, or if there's a strategy that everyone is telling you is the best strategy, and that you have to do it based upon you know X, Y, and Z, but you don't like to play that way try to find another way to win. Like variance gives us enough opportunity to, to win on hard mode if we want to, you know, uh, I, I think that that's something that gets lost a lot of the time when it comes to this stuff. And just make sure that you draft players that you like to root for too. Like it's, it's not always going to be the highest EV play. And I mean, if, if all you care about is winning, then yeah, by all means do that. And, and that's going to increase your own enjoyment. But if you are a more casual player and you don't want to draft, a certain player for whatever reason, don't draft him. Like even if all the experts or the rankings or the projections are telling you that he's the right pick, there's always going to be some other pick that ends up being better than that person. You know, we, we don't have the foresight to know who it's going to be every time, but hell take, take a shot on, on somebody that you like, if, if that's what it takes to, you know, actually make it more enjoyable for you. I think that that's something that we do lose sight of a lot of the time. Um, so yeah, good stuff, Anthony. Thank you for that. Um, Let's, let's shut it down. Uh, where can people find you on social media, and what what are you working on, man? What do you got coming down the pipeline? You can find me at Amixta on Twitter. Uh, the big thing that I've been doing this preseason really is the preseason DFS picks. You know, it's never too early yeah. to, to be a degenerate, so you can find <laughs> those. I tweet them out. You can find them at Fantasy Insiders. Only a couple weeks left, so definitely make sure that you're you're in on that. DraftKings has a, a huge tournament this week on Saturday, nine-game slate. Uh, I think it's $20,000 to first. So it's pretty crazy the money you can make off preseason DFS right now. Can you give us, like, one one player from that slate that you're interested in? Oh, my gosh. Honestly, I have no idea. I have, <laughs> I have to, like, dig into the research. Like, the thing with preseason is that it's so unlike, it's so unlike any other NFL game because – you know, you can do really well basically just by figuring out who's going to get the playing time. So oftentimes that information doesn't really come out until like maybe 24, 48 hours before kickoff. So 
you know, that's when the reporters are asking the coaches all the questions, like, you know, how long your starter's going to play, how long are, uh, you know, is this player going to do, you know, whatever. And, uh, yeah, so it actually becomes pretty difficult to research early in the week. Good stuff. Well, I mean, stay tuned for that then, listeners. Um, if you have any questions for the podcast, you can send those uh, to at 2QBs on Twitter or 2QBs at gmail.com. Um, as always, I'm going to urge you to rate and review the podcast. If you would be so kind, uh, those ratings and reviews help us spread the word. They, they help support the show and the website. Um, and the best way to support the site right now is to go get the 2017 draft guide. Uh, again, if you use the promo code 2QBXP, you'll get 10% off your copy. Um, the third edition is about to come out. We're going to have updated rankings and projections, uh, you know, based upon the most recent news. So yeah, 2QBs.com. Get your copy of the guide today. Uh, read a bunch of great stuff from a ton of awesome writers, including Anthony. Uh, so thanks again, Anthony, for coming on the show. Uh, listeners, thank you for, for hanging with us. Uh, and we'll catch you next time. Adios. Adios.